Acts chapter 9. I'm not sure if we'll get through it all uh, today or not. Well, through verse 19 is, is the goal. Acts 9, we'll read verses 1 through 19. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Well, hopefully familiarity does not breed contempt. I believe we're all familiar with this story. But as we read the story, um, what would you say is the, is the key theme in Acts 9? Does anyone want to take a, take a shot at What's the key theme in Acts 9 as we just read these first 19 verses? Even the worst can be saved? Yes, we'll definitely hit on that. Anything else? Yes, God's sovereignty and salvation. Anything else? Well, somebody heard the priest's sermon notes here. 
Jesus revealed himself. great talk about it last night but he's a good theologian so as we thought of as i thought about acts 9 and we often think of acts 9 absolutely the points you mentioned and more that of course this is the the road to damascus it's even a phrase people have a damascus experience and we hear about saul of tarsus being saved absolutely but the more I look at this passage, the more I see that we really read about Paul's conversion by Jesus and Paul's apostolic calling by Jesus by the messenger of Jesus, Ananias. And it was, it was very uh, illustrative for me to, and even as we considered in the introductory message that Acts, it's Acts of the Holy Spirit, it's it's God's sovereign salvation. It, it's many things, but it is the preaching of Jesus. And even here, yes, it's amazing that this man was saved, but it's, it's because the Savior was and is Jesus, and he also called him to his apostolic office. And it's, it's amazing, and we'll compare how Jesus spoke to Saul, and then Jesus spoke to Ananias. And I think that helps us to keep uh, the theme and even the title of the, the study today is The Wonderful Grace of Jesus. The Wonderful Grace of Jesus, which I think is a great uh, moniker for this section of Scripture. We see Saul of Tarsus transformed by Christ from being a savage into a servant or being a militant to being a man on mission for Christ. And a great transformation, probably around 33 A.D., is often put forward we don't have exact dates but just to put that out there um, and yes so as we study as we think about this chapter yes the conversion of Saul but in a greater way the work of Jesus and we'll hit that more momentarily verse one and by the way there are three accounts of of Saul's conversion in Acts uh, chapter 9 here and then chapter 22 and 26 as Saul gives his testimony before the Jews and before the kings uh, King Agrippa and of course in the epistles he'll he'll review some of the points about his conversion but so we'll reference those other parallels sort of like the harmony of the gospel the harmony within acts of his own testimony but verse 1 now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. We left off at chapter 8 last time where Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death and a great persecution began and Saul was ravaging, remember, like a, like a wild beast tearing up the church, entering house after house and dragging men off men and women and he would put them in prison. So he, he just didn't stop. It actually got worse. He not only wanted to persecute the believers in Jerusalem, but he was going to head somewhere else. Lesson one of eight, just stepping back and looking at what we read. Marvel, marvel at the wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most defiled. I come to him of Haldor Lelenus. Marvel at the wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most defiled. As I 
studied this passage of scripture, I kept thinking of that song. And the tune is you know, quite lively. Uh, and, and, and anyhow, but the lyrics are so true. And we see this man, Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus uh, the great Pharisee of Pharisees, breathing out these threats. And, and God's going to do a divine reversal. So we marvel at the wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most defiled. He was in hearty agreement when they put Stephen to death. He was dragging men and women away to persecute them, to kill them, to maybe even torture them, to give up their confession of faith. Yet, Jesus is about to rescue him. His heart was so hard toward the Lord and his followers. He was evil to the core. He was the arch enemy of Christianity. Yet Jesus was about to save him. And as, as you said, it is a picture of God's sovereign grace. What was there in Saul of Tarsus to make anyone want to save him? Actually, we would be praying for the opposite. Lord, judge him, kill him, take him away. Yet Jesus, in his sovereignty, in his sovereign grace, chose Saul of Tarsus. The sovereign spirit may turn one who, it says he was against the disciples of the Lord, ultimately against Jesus. He may turn one who was against the Lord to be for the Lord. He was going in one direction and the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, turned Saul and went the exact opposite direction which is a picture of repentance. God did that in Saul of Tarsus. I thought of Ecclesiastes 11.5. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. You do not know. We do not know what God may do. He was the most unlikely guy in Israel to be saved. Yet God saved him, Jesus saved him, and made him the greatest apostle, maybe the greatest Christian who ever lived. So he can save the, the craziest, most wicked person, as, as our scripture mentions. Or John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from. And where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Who would have thought that this man would be saved? We know the story. We somewhat read it. Um, we, we, we know the end of the story. So I think we can forget how shocking. And Ananias tells Jesus, is this really the guy? Because he was coming to most likely imprison people just like well, Ananias himself and put them to death and abuse them. Stand amazed that God saved Saul. Stand amazed that God saved you, brothers and sisters. Stand amazed at the type of people he came to save and actually saved. He doesn't attempt to save, he actually does save. And then we tell others about this Jesus who can save anyone. And we pray for others because we know God's arm is not short. If he can save Saul of Tarsus, he can save anyone, even the hardest of hearts. A persecutor of the church, once saved, 
the best preacher the church has ever seen. So, so this persecutor was changed into a preacher by the sovereign grace of Christ. And remember, Acts is largely a history of the Apostle Paul, dominating chapters 9 to the end. This, this is, I think we, we lose uh, how amazing his conversion was. We know it, it's sort of like familiarity, at least with me, familiarity breeds contempt. We know the story, the Damascus Road. Do we really? Have we meditated on it? It's profound. And when you think about yourself, it's amazing that we were saved. Most unlikely. Why me? By God's grace. Sola gratia. Grace alone. A lot of the Reformation themes in Acts chapter 9. Well, Saul of Tarsus had credentials, verse 2, because he had went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Again, he was on a mission to, to destroy the church and were these um, believers that had went out from even the preaching of Jesus or those scattered from the persecution or probably a combination of both, but there were believers and he knew about them somehow by his spies or news had traveled in the synagogues at Damascus. There were believers there, like this man Ananias we're going to see. And when you look at your map uh, in the back of your Bible, hopefully you have one, you can see Jerusalem and how far away is Damascus? About 150 miles. He was going a long way. This was a one-week journey to get to Damascus to arrest the believers, both men and women. By the way, Damascus is one of the oldest cities in the world. It was mentioned way back in Genesis 14. Very interesting history, obviously, of, of this part of the world. But there was an organized and systematic persecution of Christians. He had official papers from the high priest. It was an official sort of state-sponsored persecution, state-sponsored terrorism, to use the modern vernacular. In Acts 22, when Paul's recounting his testimony, he says similar words but adds a little bit. He said, I persecuted this way to the death he's putting believers to death I persecuted this way to the death binding and putting both men and women into prisons as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify for I, re for I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. It wasn't merely just putting them in prison. They were to be punished. And the high priest and the Sanhedrin was fully complicit, as we considered previously. All the religious elite were all in to support Saul to do this, to try to stamp out the followers of Christ the way. An early description of the followers of Christ, the way. Of course, Jesus said, I am the way, and maybe they were using that phrase that's used to describe the followers of Jesus, the way. 
lesson too, thinking about Saul and the high priest, the high priest who, who would offer sacrifices for the people without repentance, those who persecute the church of Christ will get the judgment they deserve. Without repentance, those who persecute the church of Christ will get the judgment they deserve. And remember, we see this theme of persecution throughout the book of Acts. And here it is, it is continuing at this point until Saul is converted. And we, we will see those very people, the high priest and the council of the elders, pursuing him to death all through the book and persecuting God's true people. I thought of Revelation 16, the bowls of the wrath of God. What is said in Revelation 16, beginning at verse 5, And I heard the angel of the waters say, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they, that would be the people like the chief priest and the Sanhedrin, they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. What an interesting phrase in the scripture. The angel is saying they deserve it. They deserve to drink blood because they took the blood of God's children from the righteous blood of Abel from the very beginning all the way till now. Those who persecute the church or even more broadly the people of God will get their just judgment. He continued the angel and said, I, and I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. God is a God of judgment. And he will judge his enemies either on the cross or in eternity. Persecutors of the church, if they don't repent, will land themselves in the lake of fire. And remember, uh, Hebrews 13, 11, 36, by faith, Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonments. So let's remember to keep praying today for the persecuted church. And yes, even that God would judge the wicked or save them. Lord, save them or judge them. We can pray both in the same breath. And then back to Acts 9. As Saul, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. It was 150 miles. He was getting close, maybe riding a donkey or a horse or walking. He was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Acts 22 when Paul's recounting it there, he said, approaching Damascus about noontime, he was told the time of day, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. In Acts 26, he says, at midday, O King Agrippa, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. There's a lot here. We see this uh, emotional, this personal appeal, calling his name twice. Saul, Saul, you can look at the other examples in the New Testament where when people are appealing to someone, Jesus in particular, when he spoke to people, Martha, Martha, he, he, would, he would use their name twice. It seems not in anger, but in compassion. Even to his persecutor. Lesson three, clearly, to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. To persecute the church is to persecute Christ. Why are you persecuting me? Saul did not, he was not there that we know of saying crucify him. Jesus was already dead and in heaven. Christ was persecuted because his bride was being persecuted. His children were being persecuted. His brothers and sisters were being persecuted. His disciples were being persecuted. So therefore, he is being persecuted. It was mentioned in the Gospels several times. If you, if people persecute you, they're persecuting me, Jesus said. Remember, Christ is the head of the church. We are one with him. If we are persecuted, then Christ is persecuted. Continuing, verse 5. Verse 5, we, we are seeing here a theophany, or more particularly a Christophany, thinking of those Old Testament times where God or Christ would appear to people. There's a lot of parallels between Christ appearing here and as God and Christ did even in the Old Testament. But the conversation continues in verse 5. Saul asked a question, who are you, Lord? Didn't fully know. <laughs> he seemed to know that God was meeting with him. Uh, did he mean Lord, Lord God or respect? He was dropped to his knees by light flashing. And even the way Ananias uses the word Lord and Luke writing this, I think he clearly knew that he was meeting with God, but he didn't fully get it. So he asked, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Lesson four. Very plainly, and as we mentioned at the beginning, in every conversion story, there is a meeting with Jesus. In every conversion story, there is a meeting with Jesus. Now, our conversion story is not going to look exactly like Saul of Tarsus. It, it's, it's very different, of course. Uh, we didn't experience this miraculous um, light coming down out of heaven, hearing the voice of Jesus, but in every conversion story, there's a meeting with Jesus. And I, I'm grateful that Tom has been so faithful as well as John in reminding us that we, we must focus on the supremacy of Christ. The book of Hebrews keeps reminding us we cannot get beyond the fact that we need Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes we can react to evangelicalism, Arminianism, and we can want to go even beyond or maybe even like the Pharisees. We can get tripped up 
And I thought of John 5.39. Even with the Reformation, the five solas, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. I love sola scriptura, as I mentioned last week, but sola scriptura is inseparable from sola scripture, the sola dicta. And we have to be sure that whatever we believe, that it better begin and end with Jesus. And I'm grateful, by God's grace, that our pastors have preached this to us. And from the beginning, we had a meeting with Jesus. And, and we, we must embrace by faith that Christ is the object of our faith that we cling to him, that we continue pressing on, looking unto Jesus. We can't get beyond our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we could make a God out of doctrines. Sometimes we can say that, that, that I'm a, I, I go to a 1689 church. I, I get that, and, and I, I appreciate our confession of faith, but we better be those that embrace Jesus Christ. And it's, it's, a, it's a comforting yet sobering reminder that we must be sure that we have met and are continuing to meet with our Lord Jesus. And that's what happened to Saul of Tarsus. Jesus came down and spoke to him and said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he told him what he must do, which we'll hit in a moment, two things. He must be a preacher of Christ, and he must be persecuted for Christ. And if I, I mentioned it, I think two weeks ago, Jesus is mentioned by name 71 times in the book of Acts. And chapter 9 of Acts is, yes, about the conversion of Saul, but if we miss that it's Jesus that saved Saul, we miss the point. Because he also will tell Ananias to go up and give him the message. Verse 7. The man who traveled with Saul stood speechless. This was a miracle. They were all struck. They were terrified. They were trembling on the ground, falling down. They were hearing the voice or the sound, but seeing no one. We don't know exactly what was seen here, but Paul says in his epistles that he saw Jesus by faith. He saw the glory of Jesus. He saw Jesus as Stephen looked up, looked up into heaven and saw Jesus standing, something like that. But he saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. But these other men heard a voice, but they, they, they saw no one. They were not saved. They didn't see Jesus by faith. Jesus came particularly among that group of men to save one man, Saul of Tarsus. And he would save him irresistibly. He didn't save all of those men that we have record of. Maybe later they were, we don't know. He came particularly for Saul. Why? For his own secret reasons. We don't know. We can't ask that question. We cannot say, God, why did you do this or why did you do that? But those other men saw no one. In Acts 22, he, Paul recounted it this way, and those who were with me saw the light, to be sure. 
They saw the light. It was undeniable, but did not understand the voice who was speaking to me. They didn't have faith. By faith, we understand. They did not have faith to understand or see Jesus. Again, it's only God's sovereign grace that Saul was saved and the others were not given that saving grace. Only Saul was given the understanding. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground. Can you picture this? You talk about an incredible story, the light and the, the shining and blaring brighter than the sun. It may have been hot. They fell down on the ground, but finally... Saul managed to get up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. The Lord humbled this man with blindness for three days in the house of this man named Judas. If I would have asked you, whose house did Saul stay at. Would you have known? I wouldn't have. We miss things in the scripture. Your mind can go and think about this man, Judas. Well, that's where he went and stayed there for three days. He came to Damascus led by the hand rather than coming to lay hands on the Christians. God humbled him profoundly. John Stott said, Christ arrested him before he had a chance to arrest any Christians. He came looking for the disciples, yet God blinded him. There is a, an incredible um, shock to what's happening here. There's a divine reversal. He was going to Damascus to persecute Christians, but he found Christ on the way to Damascus. He was going to be persecuted, but he was rescued and saved. And then he started fasting. He had met with Jesus Christ, but he, he surely was meditating, what have I done? He remembered the message of Stephen and other things he had heard, and he, he was probably thinking of Isaiah and the Messiah to come, and, and it was all coming to light. And he couldn't eat, he couldn't drink. And, and verse 11 will tell us he was praying. The man had been born from above, literally. He was blinded. He was fasting. Verse 10, changing gears. And I love how we have this all through the Bible, the, the historical narrative. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus. It's, this, it's the new stage, if you will. A new actor comes out. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Think of those words, here I am, Lord. Just as an aside, lesson five, let us imitate Ananias and be willing servants of the Lord. Let us imitate this Ananias and be willing servants of the Lord. Who else said the same words? Samuel. Yeah, Samuel, several times in 1 Samuel, even as a boy, here I am, Lord. If we had that in mind, if we woke up each morning and we said, here I am, Lord, 
Jesus me ajude. And remember, Ananias is probably one of the very people that Saul was coming to arrest and take back to Jerusalem. Maybe he was a leader and, he, and Saul knew his name. We don't know, but he was a devoted follower of Jesus. We'll see uh, Ananias momentarily when, when Jesus told him to go. So Ananias departed. He did exactly what Jesus said. He'll have a question. But at the, at the end of the conversation, he does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. So we can imitate the faith and the willingness of Ananias. William Barclay said, Ananias is one of the forgotten heroes of the Christian church. And again, we can read a chapter like this and we can miss things. We can forget. And here is this man, Ananias, a willing servant of Christ. Jesus spoke to him. Jesus told him what to do in this vision. And he said, here I am. What about you? What about me? Are we doing what the Lord called us to do? Do we have this spirit of Ananias and saying, yes, Lord. I may be tired. I may be weak. I may be confused. I have remaining sin, but by your grace, I'll do what you want me to do. Lord, make it so. May we imitate our brother Ananias. We could be one of those people mentioned in Hebrews 11. The faithful brother Ananias, by faith, went to Saul of Tarsus, risking his life in the, from a human point of view. But he would do whatever his Lord Christ wanted him to do. Verse 11. And the Lord said to him, to Ananias, get up and go to the street called Straight. Say that five times fast. Go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from where? Tarsus. It doesn't say Jerusalem. A man of Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now I'm comparing here the phrases um, when he says, get up and go. Earlier, he had told Saul, get up and enter. So the Lord Jesus told Saul, get up and enter. He told Ananias to get up and go. Lesson six, admire the Lord, the great maestro, and how he uses people to touch hearts. Even as we were speaking before the service this morning, some of you, some of the body, went to visit our brother Ron. The Lord uses people to touch the hearts of others, to, to guide, to direct, to teach, to bless, to encourage. God uses people. A Christian cannot live out on a desert island by themselves. Clearly, from the very beginning, God uses people. Jesus is the great maestro Telling Saul, get up and go. Telling Ananias to get up and go. He's directing them what to do. He's directing this man, Ananias, to go and minister to Saul of Tarsus. It's profound. And think of yourself. 
who was that person or those people usually who told you about Jesus, who were initially instructing you and guiding you and counseling you? I trust no one is saying, well, I had a vision and I'm telling you this is what to do, but they may have said, did you read this in the scripture? For me, it was a taxi cab driver at Fort Gordon, Georgia in 1987 who had a homemade track with just scriptures and he said, here, read this, soldier. I wasn't saved yet, but God used that person to, it was one of the things that God would use to reach my heart. Or the people in the Bible study in South Korea who were challenging me to be devoted to Christ, who were teaching me the Bible. Who was it in your life? God uses people to touch us, and maybe he can use us to touch others by counseling, guiding, advising, loving, praying with. Jesus orchestrates and guided these men, and he does the same for us today. And even a man from Tarsus, remember our emphasis? He, he, he didn't know, it seems that Saul did not live there until maybe he was just 12 and then went. It seems that even this phrase that he was known to be from Tarsus and he'll use his Roman citizenship and his connection with Tarsus later. But I think here's even a hint, a man from Tarsus. But what was Saul doing? He was praying for he had seen a vision. He was praying. I don't think this was merely the pharisaical prayers and, and praying at the times that were appointed. This man was praying to God, to Christ, because he had met Jesus. Lenski, one of the commentators I really enjoy, said this, the raging lion has been changed into a bleating lamb. The raging lion, Saul of Tarsus, breathing out murderous words and thoughts toward the church is now a bleating lamb crying out to God, praying to Jesus, meditating, fasting, and He's about to receive healing. Verse 13. But Ananias had some questions. Understandably so. Verse 13. But Ananias answered Jesus, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Word had spread that Saul was coming. He knew even that these le- he had these letters to arrest people, and he was surely con- uh, concerned that if he went to him, he would be arrested and taken back to Jerusalem. He had a doubt. And you can meditate, um, is, this, is this unbelief? I think it was a genuine concern. He was genuinely concerned. Lord, th- this is the guy that's coming to get us. And he had already harmed many of your saints at Jerusalem. He heard about Stephen and others being put to death and imprisoned. And now he's coming here to bind all who call on your name, Jesus Christ. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. Again, go, for he is a chosen instrument of to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Remember, Saul would have two things. There was a message that he must do two things. He must bear witness to Christ and he must suffer for Christ. And these three groups, 
almost in reverse, Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. So he, he had an, a great ministry to the Gentiles, but also to kings and to the Jews, the Israelites, in the days yet coming forward. This phrase, a chosen instrument of mine, a chosen vessel, again, it's Reformation Sunday, the grace of God, lesson seven, magnify the grace of Jesus who turned his persecutor into his preacher. Magnify the grace of Jesus who turned his persecutor. Remember, you persecute me. You're persecuting me into his preacher. What amazing grace. So we see here that how could it be that Saul of Tarsus was a chosen instrument? So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Does not the potter have the right over one vessel to use one for honorable use and one for dishonorable? God can do whatever he pleases. To him be the glory. Magnify the grace, the sovereign grace of Jesus who turned his persecutor into his preacher. Paul said it to the Galatians, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Grace alone, sola gratia, grace alone. By grace, you have been saved. And he would turn into a great preacher of the grace of God because he experienced the grace of God. Verse 16, the second thing that Paul must do not only to be a preacher and an apostle, but verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. As he would preach his name, he would also suffer for his name. Just listen to 2 Corinthians 11 when Paul gives his resume about persecution. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. How much Paul had to suffer for the name of Christ. You're far too spoiled. I am least. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus must suffer persecution. Paul would be the apostle for Christ and he would be the sufferer for Christ. Finally, verse 17, we're going to get to the end. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And 
after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight and got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Brother Saul, we, we can just meditate on those words. Brother Saul, he was just saved. But because he had met Jesus, he was now a brother to Ananias. And we'll see Paul use this as he speaks to other saints in Acts and in the epistles to our brother so-and-so. And he, in Acts 22, Paul records, <coughs> excuse me, some additional words that Ananias said. Acts 22:14, Ananias said to Saul, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. Why? For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. His apostolic calling. He had to meet Jesus. He had to see and hear Jesus. And that's his argument in the epistles of why he would be an apostle, because he met Jesus Christ. Lesson eight, finally. See the power of Jesus in healing blind eyes and converting a hard heart. There's a lot in these two verses, but at least we see the power of Jesus. And thinking of the Gospels, we've been studying them for years. See the power of Jesus in healing these blind eyes and converting a hard heart. I thought of Luke 5, where Jesus said, which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven you or to say get up and walk? Or in our passage, be healed of your blindness. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before him and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. There's something here of the power of Jesus who blinded Saul and healed the very blinding that he caused. He gave him eyes to see, and there's surely many illustrations of being given physical sight and spiritual sight, eyes to see according to the flesh and eyes to see God himself and to believe. See the power of Jesus in healing the blind eyes of Saul by using his servant Ananias and converting such a hard heart. This man was converted and then he was told to be baptized, he got up, maybe Ananias baptized him. Again, this unsung hero, Ananias, he baptized Saul of Tarsus, who was coming to probably put him in prison. And the man was saved by Jesus, and then he became the apostle of Jesus. I think I've missed some of these points in this story, and again, as Tom has exhorted us, as John, let us meditate on the passages we read. We can read superficially, but meditate on the scripture and find so much is here. And we've only scratched the surface. The time is gone. Let's conclude with prayer 
And if you have comments or questions that come through me, I'd love to hear what struck you, and may God help us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at and marvel at you, Lord Jesus, how you saved Saul of Tarsus, a man who hated you, a man who was killing your followers, who attacked your very person, yet you saved him. We are spellbound, Lord, by your amazing grace that you saved wretches like us, that you saved your enemies, that your grace is sovereign, that you did this to such a one, we marvel and we thank you for saving us, for give us grace that we would continue looking to Jesus, that we would not get beyond that objective faith in the Savior. Lord, may we not be tripped up and trust in the scriptures, but to be sure we're trusting in the Christ of the scriptures. Father, thank you for this brother Ananias who said, here am I. Lord, may we imitate his faith and his action. We magnify you for your sovereign orchestration, how you use people. Lord, even as we see in our little church, how you use the saints to encourage us, to help us, to love us, to guide us, to counsel us. Lord, may we do that for one another. Lord, we are here. Use us. Thank you again for this beautiful picture of salvation, how you saved your enemy, and it reminds us how you saved us by your grace and for your glory. May it be fruitful for the day ahead, the week ahead, and may we remember some of these lessons and glean many more that you would get the glory. Amen.